Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So I was talking to my dad the other day and he's taking some pain relief. And he's saying it's not working. And I had a look and I said, Dad, it's pronounced analgesic. You put it in your mouth. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. If you're a Scrubs fan, you probably knew that that was a wonderful joke from Dr. Turk on Scrubs. Today we're talking about pain relief. But I think you can say here that some pain medications can be taken or administered rectally. Really? So your dad isn't entirely incorrect. No, it was just strange that that was his first port of call. <laughs> so, we're going to be talking about analgesics, more specifically the opioids and opiates. Right, Matt? I believe so. And they are taken for pain relief, predominantly. So, as we go through this, we're going to talk, we're going to define some terms. We're going to go back through the pain pathway and briefly talk about pain gate. We're going to talk about the body's own analgesic system. We're going to talk about the receptors that these opioids bind to. We're going to talk about the history of opium and then start going through some types of opioids like morphine and heroin, for example. And then we're going to move on to addiction and withdrawal. That'll cover most bases, don't you think? I believe so. So let's start with defining some terms. So how about I ask you? Oh, okay. So I'll just go through a list of terms that I think work in this space that may be confusing to some people. All right. Uh, including myself. Yes. Because you, you hear a lot of these terms and they sound all the same. Like what? All right, so opium. Opium. As Opi- far as I'm aware, opium uh, is a derivative from the poppy plant. I think it's this 
milky white, I, I think, from reading, this milky <laughs> white exodus when you cut open uh, an unripened poppy seed. Seed or the whole bulb? I thought it was the seed. I could be wrong. I don't know. Okay. How would I know? So, an opium... Is that right? Yes, you're right. Okay. Um, ...is a mixture of an alkaloid from the poppy plant, which would be probably specific to a type of poppy plant. Uh, I don't know the Latin species from the top of my head. But, um, yes, so that's opium. Okay. Next one is uh, opioid. An opioid. So, I was under the impression that an opioid is any natural or synthetic drug that has morphine-like pharmacological properties. So, binds to the same receptors that morphine would bind to. Yeah, pretty, pretty... Or has the same pharmacological action. Pretty right. It's basically bind into opioid receptors. Yeah. Which are receptors in our body that are spread everywhere. Um, maybe you can talk about that a bit later on. But so there's opioid re- opioid receptors in our body that we have natural uh, endogenous opioids. Is that right? Opioids or, or hormones yep. that will bind to them. So opioids can be exogenous, so they're produced either from a natural plant like the po- poppy. Um, semi-synthetic and synthetic. Okay. So, uh, it's not just morphine or morphine-like, but for some reason, all of the opioid drugs are compared back to morphine. All right. So, what's an opiate? You've okay. said opioid. Okay. What's an opiate? I think that is an opioid that is specifically from the poppy seed or from opium. So, morphine would be an opiate. That's right. Okay. And an opioid could be... The endogenous chemicals that we release that bind to opioid receptors, yes, or some synthetic or semi-synthetic product that's produced. Yeah. So two examples of opiates, yeah, would be morphine and I believe codeine. Yeah. Okay. And heroin. Yeah. So that's okay. three examples. Three. <laughs> Whereas a synthetic could be fentanyl. Gotcha. But, but that's not an opiate. It's an opioid. Whew. Do you think we've confused people? Maybe. Let's move on. Uh, and then the last, last one is narcotic. A narcotic. I was under the impression that a narcotic is a drug with potentially an analgesic drug that has addictive properties, or is it just a drug with addictive properties? Uh, well, traditionally, so it's a Greek term that means to numb or deaden. Okay. okay? Uh, but it was traditionally meant to, to encompass basically opioids, but now I think it means any kind of drug. So when you hear that, like the narcotic wars or mm. the narcotic branch of um, drug, um, what's it? some department department, yeah, yeah. Uh, refers to basically any drug that's probably illegal. Oh, okay. okay. I think the last thing we should define is pain, considering that what these drugs do is they try to uh, mitigate pain or at least stop the perception of pain. So, pain. Are you going to give the uh, international pain definition? Sure. Pain Society definition. Okay, so the International um, Association for the Study of Pain states that pain is defined as an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Is that the latest one? Yeah, I think that's the latest one because it was a bit longer than that. Okay. Yeah, so it's changed a couple of times, but I think that's the most recent one. So if you just break it up a little bit, pain being defined as... What's sensory? Unpleasant, first of all. Okay. Right? Sometimes it's called noxious. Yes. Sensory, 
So some sort of input. It's not motor. No. (laughs) Um, And emotional. Mm. So a huge component. Now, it's described in terms of actual tissue damage or even potential tissue damage. So something may happen. So you can experience pain and not have any damage happening to your body at all. Yes. But it could be a warning light for pain that's going to occur, uh, for damage that's going to occur. Does that make sense? Is that possible? Can you give an example? Well, what about, there's been times in which I've put my hand under water that's too hot. I've reflexively pulled it back because it was painfully hot, but it didn't actually damage my skin. Oh, okay. But, but would it if you left it there? That's my Correct. Okay. Correct. But, But I think, I don't know, my interpretation of the emotional with the potential, Mm. um, maybe more so that you've had a previous trauma, physical trauma, and then it possibly has resolved, but you are left with pain. So so moving into chronic pain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or it, neuropathic pain. Maybe. It could be, but I think it's covering a lot of bases. That's one of the things it's covering, but it's also covering the fact that if you've ever had somebody close to you die, you experience emotional pain. Yeah, okay. Right? I didn't think of it like that. And so, you know, you've... Pain is, so this is the thing that, that I think is absolutely interesting is that pain is probably the most subjective mm-hmm. clinical descriptor that you can think of. Like, there's nothing, as far as I'm aware, objective about pain. So, for example, if I get pricked by a needle, let's just say there was a machine that could drop a needle onto my hand to a certain depth and I experience pain from that. And then we do it to you, and then we do it to a hundred other people. The pain that I experience, there's no way that we can objectively measure that it's going to be the same as yours or anybody else's. Make sense? Yeah. And so it's purely subjective, which means it is quite interesting when you look at the placebo effects for pain. So placebo treatments for pain. If there's any cause for use of a placebo, might be within pain. Okay. We'll talk about that. Shortly. So let's go on and talk about the pathway of pain because... Okay, then we so we, we've defined pain. Yeah. And it is kind of broad. Yeah. Um, and to mitigate, drugs that mitigate pain are called analgesics. Correct. But just for today, we're focusing on opioids, which are going to be drugs that act on opioid receptors, which we'll talk about what they are soon. But for some reason, there are receptors that have specific analgesic effects yes to sensory nerves or sensory processing that would mitigate pain and so the reason why matt's saying this is because there's other drugs like nsaids non-steroidal which can help mitigate pain but they do it through a different mechanism of action and you could argue that barbiturates or the sedatives and hypnotics modulate pain as well because yeah. they modulate degrees of consciousness and the so, local anesthetics, and you can have um, anti-anxieties and exactly. um, anti-epileptics. So just the opioids today. Okay. All right. So before we move into the opioids, Michael, you can describe the pain pathway. So this is how we process a painful stimulus. Yeah, and we're just going to go through it briefly because we have done a whole episode on pain where we go into more detail. But simply put... Are we going to just use acute pain as an example? Yes. Just going to use acute pain because the sensitization associated with chronic pain, we might go through later on when it comes to... Because chronic pain seems to be very similar to addiction. 
um, which is really interesting. So we might talk about chronic pain later on. But acute pain is the type of pain where you fall over and graze your knee or you touch a hot plate or Matt slaps me in the face because I talk too much. Now, how about this? Because last time you um, got a nail and stuck it into my foot. Right, with, rightfully so. With cow poo on it. Mm, mm. So today I'm going to... Is that biological warfare? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I can't remember. The... What was the topic of that? Uh, I think it was inflammation. Uh, okay. That sounds right. So for today, I'm going to hit you on the toe with a baseball bat. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, just the baseball probably wouldn't have done too much damage. All right, so Matt's just uh, bonked me on the foot with a baseball bat, and I'm now experiencing pain in my foot. So Explain why. All right, so as you're all probably aware... Just the, your big toe. All right. As you're all probably aware, in order for you to be consciously aware of anything, a sensory signal, some input, some afferent signal, some ascending pathway needs to get to my cerebral cortex. Always. If it doesn't get to your cerebral cortex, you're not aware of it. All right? Full stop. So, how does a signal get from my toe to my brain? All right. Simply put, it's a three-neuron pathway. So, the first neuron that was stimulated was a neuron in my foot called a nociceptor. Okay. It's a nociceptive neuron. So nociceptors are receptors specifically for pain. And as we spoke about in the past, pain can be a whole range of things. In this situation, it was severe mechanical force. Okay. So stimulated this nociceptive neuron, it goes into, it goes all the way up my leg and into my spine via the dorsal nerve root. Because we all know every sensory input goes in through the back. So whereabouts does it go into your spinal cord if you are trying to illustrate that to the listeners? Whereabouts in their body? Approximately. Point point, or describe where you would point where it goes into. So from your toe, that neuron goes in, what, just above your hip? Oh, yeah. So the... Lower the, back? Yes. So the lumbar sacral area. Okay. All right. So it's cu- coming in through the lumbar sacral area, the dorsal nerve root which is into the back of the spinal cord. And this neuron goes into a bit of gray matter at the back called the dorsal gray horn. Okay. All right. Now, and as, synapses. Yes. So as we all know, gray matter is where one neuron speaks to another neuron. And white matter is simply the highways where neurons go up and down the spinal cord. Here we're in the gray matter. And this neuron now synapses with the second neuron. Now, this area of the dorsal gray horn that it's synapsing, do you know what it's called? Tell me. It's called the substantia gelatinosa. Okay. Basically exists all the way up the spinal cord in this dorsal gray horn and plays a really important role for this pain processing. Mm-hmm. All right. So first neuron speaks to the second neuron, continues the signal. This second neuron at the level, or at least around about at the level in which it entered the spinal cord, it crosses over to the other side of the spinal cord. So if Matt hit me on my right toe... Once it goes into my spinal cord at the lumbar sacral area, mm-hmm. it pretty much, once it hits this second neuron, crosses immediately. Okay. That's called decussation. Now, when it crosses the other side, it then jumps towards the front of the spinal cord into an area of white matter. So it's a highway. And this is called the spinothalamic tract. And it now starts to ascend all the way up the spinal cord. It goes all the way up the spinal cord. It goes past the medulla, past the pons, past the midbrain all of the brain stem, and jumps into the thalamus. And the thalamus is, as we know, the sorting center for all sensory input. It takes some input and decides what it should do with it, where it should go. Sometimes it decides not to send it anywhere and we don't become aware of it. Other times it sends it across to 
Otherwise, it sends it across to a part of the brain called the cortex, which deals with the part of the body that's mapped to that part of the brain. So it knows where it is. Your brain now knows that you've just been smacked on the toe. Specifically, your big toe. Yeah? Michael is um, closing the, the window because a truck went past. I actually and told Matt's him... Matt's not smart enough to keep talking for literally four <laughs> seconds. It's your pathway. Keep going. Okay, so from the thalamus, like I said, it's picked up this input, says it's come from the toe, throws it, synapses with the third neuron at the thalamus to go to the cortex that's mapped to the toe. So there's their three neurons. First neuron from the toe into the spinal cord. Dorsal grey horn. Synapses with the second neuron, crosses to the other side, goes up to the thalamus. Synapses with the third neuron from the thalamus to the cortex. And the reason why I have to highlight all these different areas is because every time it synapses, this is one area that you can modulate pain. So you can modulate it peripherally at the toe, modulate it in the spinal cord at the dorsal grey horn, modulate it at the thalamus, or modulate it at the cerebral cortex. And this is pretty much where all these opioids have their effect. Okay. Are there any other parts of the brain that this is going to, this painful experience? Yeah, so as we know, it's not just this linear movement of of sensory input. There's going to be afferents that shoot off away from these neurons. And as it moves up the spinal cord and goes into the brainstem, there's this area called the reticular formation. And the reticular formation is involved with sleep-wake cycles. It's involved in attentiveness consciousness and so forth and it sends these inputs to the reticular formation one reason why when you're in pain for example you become wide awake also another reason why when you're in pain it's hard to sleep because it's constantly activating the reticular formation so which that would kind of make sense because if you're in pain you probably want to be aware of that issue that's right to rectify it yeah there's no point experiencing pain and then getting drowsy and going to sleep okay on on a hot plate All right, any other brain regions of importance? So we basically said... There are, but we'll go through it when we start talking about descending inhibition. Okay. But I want to... Any questions, Matt? Well, I mean, okay, so you've explained how the signal gets up to your brain and tells your brain that there's a problem now at your big toe. Yeah. Um, How do the drugs now... Well, what about if... What's the first thing you'd do when you hurt a part of your body? Um, well, if in this case, you'd probably chase me with the, then the baseball bat. True. But let's just say... Which I must say, I've got to put, put this as- aspect into it. Um, another region of your brain that's going to get activated is your limbic system, which would yes. uh, get you an emotional response to the pain. So that would, in your case, I'd imagine you'll get angry, particularly at me, because mm-hmm. I hit you with a bat. Well, it's important because the emotional experience of pain is important in the behavioural response to the pain. So if it makes you upset or angry, you may do something that moves you away from the pain. But they also suggest that if you, like, swear or get upset, that it actually helps with the pain? Yeah, so I think... I don't know if this was a, a, you know, peer-reviewed study, but I was watching a Stephen Fry TV show where I can't remember what they were even talking. Oh, that's right. It was about language. And so the episode was on swear words, I think. And they got a whole bunch of individuals to put their hand in ice buckets and they determined how long they could hold the hand in, in there for if they kept silent and they determined how long they could hold their hand in for if they swore as much as they possibly could. Mm. And they found that those that swore more often 
uh, could tolerate the pain more so. For longer. For longer. Now, I think potentially the conclusion is that you, by swearing, you're altering the perception of the pain mm. because, you, one, you're doing something about it, um, and two, you've probably focusing on something else, which is yes. not just the pain. So, yeah. again, this highlights that pain is 100% a perceptual experience, 100% perceptual. Okay. Makes sense? And one other thing, one other area of the brain that may be uh, impacted at this point is it your hypothalamus. Oh, so, yeah. you might get a sympathetic nervous system activation here as well. So, fight or flight response. Which would also make sense. So, okay. you get, so you get an adrenaline release. All right. Uh, so, what was your question? So, I was going to say that, you know, sometimes when you hurt a part of your body, your first reflexive response is to grab that area and potentially rub it. Okay. Right? So, people fall over, graze their knee, and they rub that knee. Uh, and the question is, why? To get rid of the gravel. <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe. All right. Pain gate theory. You've heard of that? Uh, yes. All right. So, very briefly, pain gate theory basically states that you've got two inputs coming into the spinal cord. You're going to have touch and you're going to have pain. Now, when you fall over and hurt your knee or Matt hits me on the toe, I've got pain coming in, going to my brain, and I'm hyper aware. I'm not liking it. So, I rub my toe. When I rub my toe, I'm now stimulating just normal touch or mechanoreceptors, which sends a separate input into the spinal cord at the same level. Now, the thing is, sensory input will go into the spine and travel straight up the same side it goes in. But it shoots off some little afferent neurons that talk to interneurons. And these interneurons, which simply means between neurons, will synapse with the second-order neuron in the spinal cord for pain. So rubbing a painful site stimulates a touch response into the spinal cord, which synapses with an interneuron, which talks to the pain receptor in the spinal cord and inhibits it. And I think also... That closing the gate. This is just a thought. I haven't um, substantiated this, but... Substantia be- nigra or substantia gelatinosa? Um, either. Mm. The mechanoreceptors that you're activating by rubbing are much bigger nerves with much more myelination. So they're Very traveling true. a lot quicker than pain signals. Yeah. So does that mean they kind of overwhelm it? That Overwhelm that gate? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Uh, because you're right, they're, they're, they're bigger, more myelinated neurons. Uh, and like you said, travel faster, which goes to show you that we think that pain neurons are older than touch neurons. They just seem to be older tracks. Yeah, and, um, they, and it's probably less important for the brain, really, pain, pain stimuli than um, this mechanical stimulus from, from other sensory experience. Yes. Because we've evolved pathways to be more myelinated and have bigger axons, which suggest that those are more important. Yeah. Therefore, you've given priority for these signals to go much quicker. Mm. So, it's almost like if you are on a freeway, you'd have... Or the Autobahn in, um, in Germany, let's say, all the fast lanes get the preference. And yeah. that would be uh, mechanical stimulus, whereas the slow lanes... Uh, for pain signaling. Yeah, so, I, I agree. So, for the the greater importance of the brain, it's probably going to sensory. So, in your case, what you're trying to explain, that these overwhelm the gate. Yeah. And then the painful stimulus is pushed to the side. Correct. And the reason why we're bringing this up is because it just highlights that you can modulate pain centrally in the spinal cord. And again, this is where we start talking about our own endogenous 
so internal analgesic system. So we discovered um, in the 70s that we have the capacity to release our own opioids in response to pain. Okay. And this brings up... All, so all those areas that Matt mentioned, right, and he's going to bring them up again, as we've got the painful stimulus going in, and I said, you know, it goes from periphery to spinal cord to thalamus to cortex, and then Matt, rightly so, said it fires off to where else? Oh, so you can go to the hypothalamus? Yep, hypothalamus. And you can go to um, the limbic system? Limbic so system and a, the reticular formation. Yeah, so this will give you... Um, Awareness, it will give you a sympathetic response or mm. an autonomic response. It will also give you an emotional response. So the great point about this is once these areas are stimulated, cerebral cortex, hypothalamus, amygdala, limbic system, and reticular formation, they then send descending neurons down and stimulate an area of the medulla called the periaqueductal Grey area. PAG. It's in the brainstem. It's in the brainstem. It might be, it might be the midbrain. But anyway, keep going. Actually, midbrain. It's midbrain. Sorry, it's definitely midbrain. And so this periaqueductal grey area in the midbrain, periaqueductal, it's between the aqueduct, between the third and fourth ventricles. And so once it's this area is stimulated, they send... So you've got all these signals coming down from the cortex, hypothalamus, limbic system firing down to the periaqueductal grey area. That then sends signals down to the raphinuclei. Okay. Right? And the and this raphinuclei has all these signals coming into it. And it sends a neuron down called a serotonergic neuron, releases serotonin, and sends it down the spinal cord, which synapses with more interneurons. And these interneurons release endorphins or encephalins. Okay. Or, or dynorphins? Dynorphins. Okay. Predominantly, so they're enkephalins. The, it seems to be that the descending inhibitory pathway, also known as the analgesic system, at the spinal cord level, serotonin stimulates them to release enkephalins. And the enkephalin inhibits the pain signal at both the presynaptic and postsynaptic terminal. Okay. So, ultimately, all these descending... Interactions. What does that effect have on that synapse between the first and the second order? So of, it will of if, the signal going up. All right. So if you think about the the dorsal grey horn, where that first neuron came in and spoke to the second neuron yeah. in the substantia gelatinosa, what you've got is this encephalin releasing neuron releases encephalin. It binds to the po- the postsynaptic terminal of the first order neuron and stops it from releasing its neurotransmitter, which will either be substance P or glutamate. Okay. Uh, it then goes to the postsynaptic, uh, sorry, the presynaptic neuron of the second neuron and inhibits the receptors from picking up any substance P or glutamate. Yeah. Right? Or changes the, the activation. Yeah, that's right. And so this is, now, have you ever, have you ever had this system activated for you? I can't think of an ex- a good example now. Well, I can think of a good example. I was playing football and I got smashed. So- soccer or? AFL. Okay. And got smashed so hard by a competitor um, that I was... Knocked out. I was seen, well, I got knocked out, then I stood up, was seen double. 
uh, saw double for a while, kept playing footy, played the rest of the game, and then after the match, for around about four or five days, I was in the most horrific pain, neck pain, head pain, body pain, for like five days. I was young, didn't go to the doctor or anything like that because I'm an idiot, um, but I didn't feel the pain at the time. And you see this when you watch footy players playing in the finals of, of games, they get their head split open. And they just go staple, staples. They get somebody on the sideline with no pain relief to just staple it together. And they chuck them back on the field, or at least they used to. They probably don't do that anymore. Um, and the reason why is because this whole pain system has stimulated the periaqueductal gray yeah. area to send descending signals down to the raffine nuclei, which then send descending serotonergic signals down to the spinal cord to tell the enkephalin-releasing neurons to release enkephalin to block Pain being released, pain signals being released, and pain signals coming in. Okay. Right. So basically, that, that processing that you first mentioned from your toe to up to your cortex is now being blocked off. Yeah. And it's a combination of um, stopping calcium to go in, which stops the neurotransmitter of substance P or glutamate to be released. That's right. But also, I think it plays around with potassium channels, which hyperpolarizes. Yeah, it promotes potassium efflux, and that, which hyperpolarizes. But the point is um, the pain is being blocked, but mm. endogenously, so your own body's doing it for you. So that means that if enkephalin, being a, being a neurotransmitter or hormone that's being released here, it's got, it needs to bind to something, right? Mm. So what is it binding to? Opioid receptors. Okay. Now, what do we know about opioid receptors? Mop, cop, dop, nop. What? No, there's no what. <laughs> there's no there's no what. There's only mop, cop, dop, and nop. Okay. Okay, so, okay so, wait, wait, wait. So, so, so these are receptors that have... So four. Yeah, but we'll let, probably let's focus on three. Okay, what are the three? Okay, so we've got um, mu. So these are Greek. No, no, no. You said wop, dop, nop, and tot or something. What are, what, say them. So, so these are Greek letters. So mu, kappa, delta. Okay. Okay. M, K, D. And then nop was nociceptum. But we'll, let's leave that one out. Oh, that's so, a newer one, isn't it? Yeah. Let's ignore it because I don't know too much about it. So let's focus on mu, kappa, delta. Okay. Okay. So, so you said op, cop. Yeah. So op- opioid peptide receptor. Okay, so, so so COP is kappa opioid peptide receptor. Receptor. And DOP is deltoid opioid. Deltoid? Delta. <laughs> Delta. <laughs> We've just done the muscles recently, <laughs> so that's why. Uh, and then mu opioid peptide receptor is MOP. Okay, gotcha. Now, some just to complicate a bit more, some of these have subtypes. So I think MOP has two, kappa has at least three. And did you know that... When we first started describing these receptors, and this is, if anyone's doing research on these, this is what I'm telling you. Uh, they first began as mu, delta, kappa. It was called mu after morphine, so the M in morphine, which is the first ligand that was known to bind to that receptor. Delta, the D came from vas deferens, which we know is part of the male reproductive system, but it's because that's where they first identified these particular opioid delta opioid receptors. And then kappa comes from the first ligand that tended to uh, activate this receptor. And this ligand was ketocyclozoacine. Ah, oh, uh, wonderful. Hence the K. Now, that's how they so first what is started. That, though? I don't know. <laughs> Mu, I've never heard of it prior to today. Mu, delta, and kappa 
was what they were originally called. Then in 1996, they decided to change it to OP1, OP2, OP3, right? So OP3 was Mu, OP1 is Delta, OP2 is Kappa. And then in the year 2000... Is it off Star Wars? I don't think so. What's the robot called? Oh, no, there's Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> What's the robot called that's C-3PO. Called? Oh, way off. Keep going. Yeah, you have, you have <laughs> wrong numbers, wrong letters. And then in the year 2000, they change it to Mop, Dop, and Cop. But okay. The, but now they seem to use interchangeably in the literature Mu Delta Kappa or Mop, Dop, Cop. Okay. There you go. For anyone who doesn't care, but doing research on it, if you want to Google it, uh, mop.cop or mu delta cap is the way to go. Okay, and so the, the reason why I'm telling you this is these opioid receptors are located in different places in the body. That's right. Okay. So and it's not just the central nervous system, so yeah. spine and brain. And some are located, well, from an analgesic point of view, is located on the actual peripheral nerves, mm. like we just mentioned. So on the first order at the at their end, or the second order at their start. Mm-hmm. But they're also lo- located in different brain regions, which would explain why you get different effects from taking opioids, like right. a euphoric or hallucinogen. Hallucinogenic? Hallucinogenic, yeah. Yep. Um, what other kind of s- central nervous system effects? Oh, there's heaps. I mean, it- so, so like you said, you can have analgesia, you can have sedation. I get sedation. Yeah. Um, you can have uh, dysphoria. So, a whole bunch of stuff. Okay. Yeah. But then it can also cause effects to respiratory system, mm. both centrally and peripherally. Um, the cardiovascular center, the GIT, um, the vomiting center. Yeah. The, um, your bile ducts. Oh, really? So, it's quite, even parts of your, well, your skin could have an effect. Even like mast cells can be affected by it. Yeah. So, I guess why we're saying this is because these, Receptors are located in a whole lot of different regions. Yeah. And the different opioid drugs, which we're going to go through, will bind to these receptors in different ways. Yes. Which is why these drugs are all different. Will do slightly different things, mm. but also cause an array of side effects. Correct. Now, there's, there's, like Matt said, there's three different receptors and there's a couple of different endogenous, so ones that the body naturally produces opioids that bind to them. So we said enkephalin, but there's enkephalins, dynorphins, yep. and endorphins. So simply put, what you'll find is that the enkephalins bind to the delta receptors, the dynorphins bind to the kappa receptors, and the endorphins, specifically beta endorphin, but there's other endorphins, mm-hmm. bind to the mu receptors. Yep. And so if we were to look at generally the functions of these different receptors, you could potentially just say that mu receptors have an analgesic effect, sedation, respiratory depression, bradycardia, decreased gastrointestinal tract motility, and nausea and vomiting. The delta have spinal and supraspinal analgesia and decreased gastrointestinal motility. And the kappa has spinal analgesia, diuresis, and dysphoria. Great. What do you reckon? Yeah, that's good. And it's also important to say that the while we've got the endogenous opioids binding to specific receptors, when we start talking about the opiates, then they may bind to one receptor more so than another, but they're not specific. So there's a huge amount of overlap in both the binding to these receptors and also the effect of these 
the subsequent effect of binding to these receptors. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So these receptors are essentially like little seeds that, um, at least in the uh, endogenous um, uh, opioids, which you said uh, endorphins, encephalons, and denorphins, yeah. these will jump on the seeds and cause an effect to these locations. Yeah, they're agonists, so they stimulate Agonist. Okay, and so this then leads on to the discovery... Are we ready to go into the drug? Yeah, I think... Well, I think we need to talk about um, the discovery of opium. Okay. Right? And we'll, well start with opium. So basically, this has led to the discovery of... Opium. Chem- <laughs> chemicals that mimic these intrinsic or endogenous... Uh, opioids. Yes. To jump on these seats to cause action. Yeah, and we've known for millennia of one drug that tended to bind to these receptors, which came from a plant, which we spoke about earlier, which is the poppy plant. Okay, and so these are going to be opioids. O- o- which ones? Anything from opium. So opiates. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. And so <laughs> let's talk about opium first of all, because like I said, opium has been used, I think... Uh, Maybe the first account was 400 BC in Sumeria. It was used for its analgesic properties. Where's Sumeria? Sumeria. Is that what you said? Sumeria. And where is yeah, it? That's where writing began. Yeah, but this doesn't give me an indication where it is. I think because I'm trying to clutch <laughs> By time, I'm trying to, trying to find it. Mesopotamia? Yeah, Mesopotamia, which is what? Turkey area? Uh, I think Mesopotamia means between two rivers. And okay, I which think, rivers? Uh, the Sumerian River. <laughs> no, I think it's... Uh, why do you have to bring this yeah, up? Yeah, I know now. Geology, uh, geology. Geography is not my strong suit. I don't have a strong Euphrates suit. Euphrates is one. <laughs> Where's that? Oh, it's over oh, the towards river. Syria and Iraq. Okay. So it's somewhere around there. Now, that was probably the first recorded use, but we know that the first verified use was in Greece, 3rd century BC, by the Greek uh, Theophrastus. And Theophrastus, I think he gave the name opium, which is Greek for juice, because they used to turn the a poppy into a juice that was the poppy juice. And they used to drink that and they used to get these sedative and uh, analgesic effects, maybe euphoric I'm effects sure, of, sure. of opium. Um, we know that the Arabian physicians, they were well versed with opium and they tended to introduce it to China. Um, and it was mainly in the first instance to treat dysentery, reduced gastrointestinal motility use, right? Because like codeine is quite useful for diarrhea. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't One of the bad side effects of codeine is uh, constipation. True. Well, yeah, same with all of these opioids. It sort of constricts the smooth muscle. Yeah. S- stops them from working. Um, then we've got, in the early 1500s, Paracelsus. Uh, he was credited for the first production of something called laudanum. And laudanum is a concoction of morphine and codeine. Um, but he didn't know what he had there. Basically, he <laughs> created this laudanum, which is this poppy juice mix, uh, which was used to... It was a panacea. They thought it treated... Again, we go through panaceas all the time. Thought it treated everything. That's how you are with cranberry juice. True. In the 1700s and 1800s, uh, opium smoking became popular in China. Uh, Then they spread to Europe and tended to be used... Or I should say overused. But the studies show that it wasn't as abused as much as alcohol, strangely enough. So that was smoking. I wonder if like it was just the side effects may have been too drastic. Yeah, as in, well, these people would knock themselves down for days. Or just die. Maybe. Respiratory depression. Yeah, that's the biggest one. Yeah. Um, Or it could have just been the fact that alcohol was cheaper 
and you could take it all the time and still function on it. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we're in the 17, 1800s now. Then we move to the early 1800s, 1803, when morphine was first isolated. Do you know what morphine's named after? The person who discovered it? It is not. Okay. Named after Morpheus from The Matrix. No, it's named after Morpheus. Matt's never seen The Matrix, I have, I have everybody. Uh, which is the Greek god of dreams. Right. Yeah, so that's where morphine was named after. Do that you know a- how it was modified from opium? Not a chemist, buddy. Okay. And I don't care. And then <laughs> in 1848, codeine was isolated. So nearly 50 years later, so morphine, 1803, and then 1848, codeine. So codeine and morphine must have a pretty tight relationship. Yes, they're both naturally occurring. Naturally and occurring and what? Uh, well, opioids. opioid. Yeah. So this is, leads us to how we categorize opioids. Okay. Do you want me to do this? You do it. Okay. So there's three ways you can cat it. Well, there's probably more now, but there's three, at least three common ways that they classify these drugs known as opioids. Mm-hmm. There is the traditional way, which is based on their strength. So this would be strong, intermediate, and So if you weak. are opioids, that would be me. Weak? No, it's strong. Okay. Uh, and this would probably... What sits in that category? This would probably go hand in hand with the type of pain that it's trying to negate. So what sits under the strong category? Okay. I'll just read the ones that I think we'll go through later. Right. Okay. Because the list's so long. So the strong... So in the traditional category, the strong opioids are morphine, pethidine, fentanyl. All right. Okay. The interme- intermediate is bryponorphine. Right. And the weak is codeine. So when you say strong, medium, and weak, are you referring to their acute action or the length of action? Or what are you referring to as strong or their ability to, you ask somebody, what's your pain prior? And then you give them the drug and then you say, what's your pain now? Yeah, is I, that I would, how it's measured? I would imagine, and then this is just me guessing here, mm-hmm. but I would imagine it's a combination on how quick it will come on, how long it will last, but also the the... Uh, the amount of pain that it can mitigate. So the the so it's strength of analgesic effect. Yeah, I reckon that would be it. Okay, that, that's a guess though. Mm. The we other... still don't have much better um, ways of measuring pain apart from just asking somebody, right? Zero to ten. Zero to ten, which seems pretty rough, but that's yeah. all we do. Or for children, they have the faces. Yeah, point at the face, which best describes how you feel. Yeah. I'll okay, point at Matt's face. Because it makes me feel horrible. All right, next category, origin. So this would be whether it is naturally occurring, semi-synthetic, or completely synthetic. So semi-synthetic means what they've just slightly altered a naturally occurring compound. Yeah, so... And fully synthetic is they've created it from scratch in the lab. Correct. So natural occurring ones, again, these are the drugs we're going to go through, and this is going to be... um, They're going to be reoccurring... Term. So, morphine again. Yeah. Codeine. So, these are naturally from that poppy plant that you spoke of. Um, semi-synthetic is dimorphine, which is what? Uh, two morphines. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's heroin. Heroin? Yeah. Oh, how would I know that? And buprenorphine. Sorry? And bu- buprenorphine. Okay. And then synthetic fentanyl methadone. What about pethidine? Pethidine is also synthetic. Okay. And then we go to, this is probably more chemical. So this is... Now, how is that different? What do you mean chemical? They're so all chemicals. Is, well, this is categorized based on 
chemical or maybe oh, pharmacokinetic. Maybe. Gotcha. Uh, so these are a functional um, category. So this is their pure agonists, partial agonists, or antagonists. All right, go on. Okay, so do you want to just explain what that means? So pure agonist is going to agonize the receptor. So it basically leads to a depolarization event, which stimulates the, the neuron that it's bound to or the cell that it's bound to. So stimulates it to have its... Or acti- activates its act- function. Activates the receptor to then do whatever the receptors were supposed yes. to do. Yes, and an antagonist will antagonize this. So it can either block it from happening or it can stop it from having any effect at all. Yeah. So the pure agonists, so these are quite strong acting morphine fentanyl. Yeah. Okay. Partial agonists are buprenorphine. Yeah. Okay. Then you can get agonist antagonists. Um, so these are drugs that can act as an agonist but also block at the same time. How does that work? I think it would just be the different receptors. So it binds to the receptor... But it, it, it maybe bind to some, yeah, and then not and block others. Gotcha. So these are becoming more closely studied for possible as we move into the uh, what we call or what's being thrown around as the opioid opioid addiction or epidemic. Yeah, because these drugs may mitigate the addictive properties of the drug. Okay, and then we have pure antagonists, so such as naloxone or Narcan. And so that binds to the receptor and stops it from working. Yeah. So the naloxone is interesting. It's actually, well, what I read was it's an agonist, but it's the way it actually activates the receptor is by doing nothing. Ah, so it's sort of like, so it sits on, it sits, (laughs) it sits on the seat. Yeah. So it activates the receptor, but does nothing. Gotcha. Okay. So, and in that case, so. Because we know that Narcan is given to those people who are potentially overdosing from opioids, right? Yes. And so it does it because it competitively inhibits those receptors. So you're going to have a competition between heroin and Narcan at the receptor. Narcan seems to win, yeah. therefore pushing the, the drug off. And then the person very, quite quickly um, will stop uh, having the s- terrible side effects. Yeah. I remember Dr. Carl was talking about this. Mm. And so he's a science communicator in Australia, uh, very famous. And was a medical doctor. Was a medical doctor. And I think it was either he did it or speaks of a story of it occurring where a person was in a heroin overdose and he gave um, Narcan. Yeah. And the person almost immediately, so it would have been IV, almost immediately woke up and then punched him in the face (laughs) and said, you ruined my high or something. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Uh, so, do we know? Do we, you know how you went through the the receptors, mop, cop, dop, yeah. and told us where they were, yeah, and which uh, endorphin and kephalin dynorphin works for each? Do yeah. you want me to quickly just read out the drugs that we just spoke about and the receptors they work more strongly on? Or? Let's yeah, let's do it with the main ones, right? So let's do it with morphine, codeine, um, heroin, and fentanyl. So a lot of these, Don't you reckon? Just yeah. So those a ones? lot of these drugs that we, so the agonist morphine, pethidine, heroin, fentanyl, they are really strong acting on the mu receptor. All right. Less on the kappa and um, delta. And so just to reiterate, mu has analgesic effects, sedative effects, respiratory depression, bradycardia, reduced gastrointestinal motility, and can induce nausea and vomiting. Yeah. Whereas um, buprenorphine seems to have a bit more effect on the kappa and less on the mu. So kappa seems to be more spinal and analgesia. 
So more of those spinal cord central effects and also results in dysphoria. So often if you stimulate kappa, you have more of a dysphoric sort of euphoric effect as far as I'm aware. Okay. And then the naloxone, which is the blocker, seems to work on all of them pretty well. But remember, uh-huh. it, but it's a blocker, remember? So yeah, it's competitive sp- inhibition. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so do you want to go through the... How do you want to go from now? Well, I think what we need to talk about is the fact that these particular receptors are found all throughout the body. Like Matt said, you can find them in the cerebral cortex. You can find them in the spinal cord. You can find them in the brainstem. You can find them even in the peripheral. You can you can find them in the knee joint and the gastrointestinal tract and the immune system and the heart and the vas deferens. So you can find these receptors all over the place. But when you stimulate them with these particular compounds, whether they're endogenous endorphins, dynorphins, and kefalons, or exogenous morphine, fentanyl, pethidine, heroin, the binding to the receptors and having the primary effects of analgesia. However, if it's mu, so I think the, one of the main take-home messages is, if it's binding to the mu, like morphine, for example, does, in addition to the analgesia, you get respiratory depression and nausea, vomiting, and decreased gastrointestinal motility. Because there's some of the major side effects you're going to see with morphine, Yeah, right? so I think one of the biggest ones that, that a clinician has to be aware of is respiratory depression. Yes. And so that, what that, it's probably going to do a number of things, but at least centrally, it would have an effect on the respiratory center. Mm. Which is brainstem. And essentially turn off your breathing. Yeah. And so that's something that you have to be strongly aware of when you administer any type of opioid. There's obviously some that have a greater effect on the on the brainstem for, for breathing than yeah. others. But you have to be aware that some will have latency. So you might give the drug. It might work in its analgesic effect, mm. but it takes a lot longer to get into the brain, so they cross the blood-brain barrier, mm. and then its latter respiratory effects might be much later. Okay, which um, is something that you have to be aware of. Absolutely. So the, the probably the most common way of a person dying from an opioid overdose would be their breathing is just turned off. Yeah. Okay. So. How do individuals become, why are these drugs so addictive is then the question, right? Or is that a later question? I think we should go a bit later. So you've said that the the primary use of these drugs is through analgesia, and we've done that. But we know that it's located, these receptors are located throughout the central nervous system. So we're going to get other effects. So you could get sedative effects. And so this might be okay in some instances. You want to take a person's um, pain away, but also you want to sedate them a bit. And that might be good to help them sleep. But again, it might have side effects if you want a person to operate a normal life and go to go to work. You don't want them to be tired all the time and not be able to operate properly, right? I think it's, it's, it's worth saying that... Um there's been accounts of people who have morphine, for example. Let's say they, they're experiencing a 10 out of 10 pain. And this is an acute pain. So it's not chronic. It's not something that's always there. But an acute pain may be post-surgery or something like that, right? Uh, you give them morphine. And then you ask them about their pain. And what you'll probably find is that they will say, look, I'm still feeling the pain. And it's still probably a 10 out of 10 pain. But I don't care. It's not bothering me. My perception of the pain has altered. Wow. And so this then plays an important role in how you can perceptually override pain. They did a study with 30, 30 women 
and they got their, them to hold, they either held the hands of their partners or held the hand of an inanimate object, like a rubber glove wrapped around a lamppost or something, right? So some inanimate object. And then they made them experience a thermal associated pain, right? And what they found was that those who were holding the hands of their partner significantly perceived pain as being uh, less extreme, less intense, less painful. And so it demonstrates that the perception of pain has a lot to do with a, a reward system and potentially there's a link between chronic pain and addiction in saying that there potentially uh, chronic pain is not just some sensory abnormality but a disorder of the reward system. Hmm. And we'll talk about that in a sec. Okay. So are we happy with the central nervous system effects? Yes. Okay. So... Which we basically would categorize um, part of the central nervous effect would be that respiratory depression. So besides respiratory depression, what's the other side effect that you would commonly go with? Well, like I, like I said before, nausea, vomiting, yeah. um, bradycardia, and reduced gastrointestinal motility. So nausea, nausea and vomiting is very common, and the the thought behind that is probably the trigger zone. So it'll activate the trigger zone again in your brainstem yeah. and causing that um, base of the fourth ventricle. Yeah. Um, also, it's going to have an effect to your pupils, so meiosis, so it causes to constrict. So yeah. that's an effect. So tiny pupils. That's an effect on um, the, old, uh, the ocular motor, particularly. So that's the third cranial nerve, but the nuclei that, uh, which is Edinger Westphal nucleus, so it affects that. Um, and the other big one is the gastrointestinal tract. So it seems to have a spasmodic effect, but also it blocks the parasympathetic nerve system's activation or its um, effect on the GIT and what do we know that the gastrointestinal tract does? Uh, peristalsis. Yeah, so it's going to stop that. Yeah, so constipation. Constipation is a big one. Now, am I, am I wrong in saying that I heard, and it could be incorrect, that because of the effect that opioids or morphine has on constricting smooth muscle, that it, it shouldn't be given to somebody with kidney stones? Well, I, I, I can comment on the biliary tract. Yeah. So it does cause um, contraction in that case. So if somebody's got uh, some sort of so gallstone, gallstone, you shouldn't... Give an opioid. Or at least the opioids... You said will... give them ibuprofen, but don't give them morphine, did you say? Well, I'm not sure about the, the most appropriate drug in that case. Uh, but uh, but uh, there's, the certain, things, there's yeah. certain opioids that will cause constriction of the biliary um, ducks. So while the pain may not be that's right They're as bad, you're, you're effectively blocking the it trigger off. is becoming worse. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yes, that's a good point. So possibly you're right in uh, if you're going to correlate it back to a, a different type of pipe. Mm. But in the in the case um, the ureter, that's quite possible that if you gave um, certain opioids that may stop the contraction of the muscles, yeah. the stone would be more likely to get stuck longer. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right. Yeah, interesting. Uh, then, the, then you have the cardiovascular effects. So, Bradycardia, why is that? Um, well, probably the chronotrophic effect of, of the heart, but I think this is in high doses. I don't think... I, because we know that, say, a person presenting with um, heart attack 
to, um, can give been given morphine. Mm. Um, and so that might be a combination of removing the pain and the anxiety and the sympathetic reaction yeah. that you would expect to go around an MRI. Have you ever had morphine? I've had pethidine. I've never had either. I've never... Uh, the only derivative I've had is codeine. Okay. That's it. I've had, definitely had pethidine when I had my uh, nasal septum straightened. straightened. Did you? Yeah. Did you get your nose busted? I used to be a boxer. Well, not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's just a congenital abnormality. No, don't say that. Say you busted it in a footy accident. Um, but... There seems to be also an effect, um, I think, through histamine for blood pressure. And so, it bl- blocks that because we know that histamine is released by mast cells. So, it has an effect there which then causes hypotension. So, a side effect of morphine from a cardiovascular standpoint could be significant hypotension. So, you're saying that morphine stimulates mast cells to release histamine? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Okay. And this histamine results in vasoconstriction? No, other way around. Peripheral but dilation. Peripheral dilation. Yeah. So then hypotension. Yes. Oh, did you say hypotension? I said hypotension. Sorry, I think you yeah. said hyper. All right. Uh, another effect is cough suppression, which is actually possibly a good thing. Yeah. So codeine-based um, anti-cough syrups yep. could be used in that case. But again, it would probably be in a dose that um, might affect the way that the cough is induce but not have other deleterious effects elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, I think that's main... Well, a side effect, because we spoke about um, the release of histamine, is another side effect is itchiness. Oh, yeah. So, some people do get itchy from... Yeah, so, okay, so the itchiness from the morphine is because of the histamine that's been released. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. That that is a common side effect. That's important. So, these are all the common side effects to be wary of when you... Um, Mainly morphine, right? When you um, administer these opioids, these are all the possibilities that could come about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do you want to move on to the drugs now? Yeah. Okay. So, the drug that they all compare against is morphine. So, morphine... It's a gold standard. That's the... So, when we talk about opioids, they always refer back to this one. And so, when you have your slight differences, it's always comparing back to this first one, which you said was the first opioid. So, morphine's the baseline. Yeah. Okay. So, we know it's naturally occurring. So, we're starting with morphine? Yeah, we'll start with morphine. So, the way that you can give it uh, is through intermuscular, IV, so intravenous, subcutaneous, rectally. So, this is where your dad came into it. There we go. So, he He wasn't taking rectal morphine. (laughs) Okay. It's a good name of a rock band, isn't it? (laughs) Epidural. Yeah. And intrathecally. What's that mean? Uh, it's pronounced fecally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, which is into your CSF, correct? Yes. So, it gets put straight into your cerebral spinal fluid. Yes. Why would they do that? Uh, if you want to get it centrally. Because, okay, so morphine... Put in the bloodstream. Morphine doesn't have a great ability because it's got a very low lipid solubility. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Super well. Okay. And so, if you wanted to get into the central nervous system, it might be better Just to... Just trying get... to think of a scenario in which it would be required to get it into the CSF. I mean, like, what, what scenarios would somebody need morphine that terribly that you can't just intravenously infuse that you'd have to 
basically hug, get them to hug over a pillow and get it into their CSF? Not sure. Good question. Um, well, that we, would be more epidural. But anyway, okay. So how come no one, none of these are ingestion? How can they oh, okay. so, so good point. So before I get to the kinetics, the final point is it usually peaks about 30 to 60 minutes after dosage. Okay. Regardless of yeah, which method? Regardless of the administration. I mean, because I am IV subcutaneous. I mean, that would probably be a bit arguably, but at least I am IV is probably relatively rapid. Yeah. But it's going to peak at about 30 to 60 minutes. I'd say CSF would be immediate. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then we go into kinetics. So this is what your question is asking. So if you were to take it orally, uh, a significant amount of it would be metabolized both in the gut wall and your liver. Oh, okay. So making it inactivated. So this would be considered the first pass metabolism, which is what I'd imagine is why most morphine would not be given orally. So ingest it, goes into the gut, gets absorbed into the portal venous system. Goes yeah. to the liver and the liver just inactivates it. Yeah, it puts a, a water molecule on it, which is glucuride, I think, mm-hmm. and inactivates it into kind of two types, which is M3G, which is, I think, morphine-3-glucuride, which about 70% is made in this form. Okay. And then M3G, sorry, M6G, mm-hmm. and this is about 10%. But this, this particular molecule is 20 times more powerful or more potent than morphine itself. So this might be. So it's not an activating it then. Well, this is this could be an active form of a analgesic effect of giving it orally. Okay. But we don't give it orally, so why don't we do that? Well, it it generally will be excreted rapidly, but for some people who may have renal failure or renal uh, insufficiency, this might become a problem. And because it's water soluble, it's more now than now it's water. Out. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay, so not, poo- not pooed out. It's two possible ways: peed or pooed. <laughs> All right, poo poo's predominantly going to be the fat soluble, and pee is going to be the water soluble. Well, in actual fact, fat soluble is just going to continually get absorbed into the body. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> so now going to the effect of morphine. So its main effect seems to be because it does bind to the mu receptors pretty well. Yep. Okay. So its analgesic effects are quite good, but. The other side effects, which you will get hand-in-hand with it, is sedation. But you will get a reduction in possible anxiety. So it's anxiolytic, which could be a good thing. It will in a... in a well, Anxiety and pain is intrinsically linked. Yeah. So it will have uh, a bradycardia effect and a hypo- hypotensive effect. In higher doses? In higher doses, yeah. Oh. Other side effects, as we said, is respiratory depression is the one you should be really... Um, looking out for nausea and vomiting, itchiness, bronchospasm, and meiosis. Okay. Okay, so that's morphine. Any other things you think we should mention? No, morphine? I think we should move to codeine okay. because of its relationship with morphine. So codeine is also naturally occurring. Yeah. Um, it is, so it's, it is an opioid, which means what to you? Uh, which means it binds to opioid receptors. And that's from opium. Yes. Okay. But also, you said opiate. Yeah, opiate. We define... Not opioid. Okay. Oh, you're right. I mean, but I just want to say opiate is from opium. We've continued okay. to confuse the listeners. <laughs> it's got a very... It's got a much lower affinity to um, its receptors compared to morphine. Okay. okay. So, it's not going to be... At the, hence why it's considered a weak um, opioid. So, how is it taken? How do you okay, get it's, it usually, it's usually going to be given orally. 
Okay. okay. Now, why so if you we get, take if, codeine so but if not you, morphine? Either? If you considered... All right. If you consider morphine in its dosages, the dosage for morphine is about 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilo. Okay. Okay. Whereas a dosage of codeine is 30 to 60 milligrams. So, per kilo? Uh, no, just generally. Just just as a dose. Okay. So, what would that end up being? Uh, it's, 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 it's about 0.5 then. For me, for a bit less than 0.5. Per, per kilo. Okay. 0.25 to 0.5 per kilo. So, it's at least double. At least double what morphine is. Yeah. Okay. So you need a bigger dose. Now, interestingly, because it's given, um, so your question is, why is it given orally, which is different to why morphine is? is yeah. That, that was your question. Why is coding given orally yeah. while morphine is not given orally? Okay. Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, good <laughs> answer. Hurry up. Yeah. Codeine <laughs> is metabolized in the liver to, in some cases, be made into a morphine-like structure. So then, um, it becomes morphine-like by its, change by your liver. So this hepatic first pass makes codeine more active. Correct. Okay. But it still only has a bioavailability of 50%. So sure. what you take in, only half can get into your blood. And that's only for a certain percentage of the population too. Right. So another 10% of... So one in 10 people can't do this conversion. So codeine is essentially pointless to give. For one in 10 people. Correct. Okay. I, th- I think I'm one of those people... Because I've had I've had codeine for a, with a headache before, and it uh, doesn't seem to do too much. So as I said, it's usually given for mild, moderate pain. So it's not going to be in, used in the same category as morphine. No. Okay. So in Australia, it was traditionally put in at lower doses, so from eight to thirty milligrams yeah. dosage, in with other um, medication. So it's used to be commonly put in with paracetamol yeah or with ibuprofen yeah ibuprofen yeah or even aspirin okay so a combined medication yeah and so i read this this morning which was quite amazing um australia has well prior to 2018 had it's the amount of people that would use codeine was more than all of america Okay, what's and the, our, po- what's and our the popul- population difference there? So the po- Australia has 7% of the population of America. Wow, because I think what we've got 22 million people here-ish. Yeah. And what's America, over 120 million people? No, over 300,000. 300? Over 300 million. Well, and, but regardless, so this wasn't normalised no, the population. No, it was normalised. This was taking everybody, yeah. we Australia used as more a, codeine. Yes. As a country, we used more codeine prior to 2018 than America did. Why is the question? I don't, well, I don't know, but I would imagine when... Ease of purchase? We used to be able yeah, to purchase it over be, the you counter. Yeah, you could go into a supermarket. Do you know if you need to go over the counter in the States? If you Do you need a prescription? I'm not sure about coding. I'm not sure. I mean... But interestingly in America, um, which is not the case in Australia, um, medications are advertised. Yeah, we it's not allowed to be advertised here in Australia. So you go to the States, you watch... Yeah, it's an ad break between a TV show and there's 40 ads and then it says, every one of them says, may produce diarrhea at the very end of it. <laughs> Amongst others. Amongst uh, many others. Half but, the ad is all this. The good thing about codeine is it will not give you diarrhea. It will actually, you can actually use it for diarrhea. Aha. Uh-huh. So it will, it will block you up. Nice. So you probably won't get that at the end of a codeine use. No, so next oh time. <laughs> may help you with diarrhea. <laughs> okay. So, um... Your question is why did we? Why is Australia? Why was Australia so 
big in using codeine. I yeah. think it, I think it was just a perception that it was a drug that would work. It's like I think a lot of people think that codeine yeah. and Panadol or paracetamol or ibuprofen or ibuf what do people call it? Ibuprofen. Ibuprofen oh, or, or neurofen. Ibuprofen. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. I've heard people say weird things like that. Um, they're all synonymous. They are not all synonymous. They're all quite different to one yeah. another. Codeine is a opioid-based analgesic, right? It's a narcotic analgesic, while paracetamol and ibuprofen are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They basically work predominantly by reducing inflammatory responses due to prostaglandin. Codeine yeah. doesn't do that. Yeah. But it was chucked in together with the other medications. So I reckon a lot of people in Australia would have just thought, oh, this will get more bang for my buck with this one. So I'll just get True. this with codeine. Yeah. Because even we had, we saw the case, the legal case in Australia where, um, Nurofen or maybe the ibuprofens were getting sued. Companies were getting sued because they were oh. marketing their medications of Spe- specificity of action. For, this is for back pain. Yeah. This is for period pain. This is for headaches. Yeah. This is and for migraines. No difference in and all it's the, the same medication. Same medication. Yeah. yeah. So I just wonder if it was branding. Could be. But anyway, so in Australia since 2018, I believe they made it prescription only. So they first took it away from over the counter pharmacy only. Yeah. To now, it's a prescription only. Yeah. And so, the overdose cases have reduced by 50%. Wow. Um, so, it was actually had a great effect. Yeah. Mm. Wow. There you go. Because they used to think what would happen... So, this was the aversion to doing this. Mm. Um, I think the GPs were on board with it, but a lot of the pharmacists weren't. Mm. But the, the, the thought behind why this would be a bad idea was people would then just move to the... The harder more, drugs. The harder ones. Oh, I doubt that because it's but, harder to get. But since 2018, they haven't seen any increase that people who traditionally may have used codeine are now using a more heavier opioid. Wow. So, less overdose and no indication that they're using a, a heavier opioid. Good to hear. So, a few other things that people might use codeine for is anti-diarrhea and for coughs. Yeah. Anti-tussis. Tussif. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it doesn't have very much respiratory depression or euphoria, so it's got less addictive properties than morphine. Okay, but obviously, if you're going to use it for diarrhea, it's going to have big side effects of constipation. Yeah. Okay. All right, so moving on to dia- diamorphine. So, what did we say that was? Heroin. Okay, so this, this is semi-synthetic. Okay, it is about two times more potent. Uh, this than- is my question. Why isn't heroin... A drug of clinical use. Well, it is. It is. Okay, I'm not sure how yeah. much. I'm not sure how much in Australia it is. Yeah. But apparently, it's um, it's used in the UK. Um, really. But mostly for a setting of like um, serious malignancy. So. Pain relief. Yeah. For obviously pain relief, but Bec- for the for because it's so potent. But so also, it's 200, I... 200 times more lipid soluble. Than morphine. So it's getting into more tissues, basically. Yes, it's got a very wide bioavailability. And it binds to more receptors? Well, not necessarily. It seems to be stronger in its analgesic effect. Mm -hmm. But because it's immediate, so because it's lipid soluble, it crosses the blood brain barrier very quickly. Yeah. So any central effects you get straight away. Wow. Unlike morphine, which will take time. Yeah, 30 60 minutes. So respiratory depression, you'll get almost immediate with heroin. Ooh, so ODs on heroin are predominantly because they stop breathing. 
That would be a guess, but yes, that's true. But but it'll be very but it'll be very quick. Yeah. So if you gave your administration of heroin intravenously, mm. the the depression on the respiratory center would be quick because yeah. it's going to cross the. Whereas morphine could be I don't know hour. Yeah. Possibly. Wow, that's interesting. Um, because it's such a strong, it, two times stronger than morphine, and it's two more, or two hundred. Two times oh. stronger, but two hundred times more lipid soluble. Gotcha. It's much more powerful in its analgesic effect. So you'd need half of the dose that you would for morphine. So it, it, it is useful for very strong pain. That's a why we don't use that as opposed to morphine. Well, because it's going in the central nervous system, it also has very strong uh, addictive properties. Yeah. So, and euphoric. Yes. So that's where that risk lies. But I'm I think, about but I think, sure. I think in its therapeutic dose, it can be quite useful. Okay. Yeah. So that's morphine. Moving to pethidine. Pethidine, so this is synthetic. So it was initially used or um, tried to be originated as an anti-muscarinic. So what, what, is, what is a muscarinic again? Muscarinic is cholinergic, which is parasympathetic, yeah. which is rest and digest. So going against parasympathetic nervous system. So they would utilize... Uh, anti-parasympathetics or parasympathetics or mimics no 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 because it's oh did you say it was pro it's anti Anti. lytic yeah lytic yeah so uh, so why would you have a drug that's anti-parasympathetic well I think it may maybe to try to negate some of the other side effects but it seems to cause so reduced oh. gastric, gastric motility would be a big one yeah so it's dry mouth is a problem and tachycardia is a problem because you, you mean a side effect yeah. of this oh, okay. so Sorry. this is pethidine yeah pethidine i've had pethidine yeah and i had dry mouth <laughs> i vomited <laughs> really i had it as i said after the surgery as i was leaving to go home they gave me pethidine intramuscularly in yeah. my quad but, in my uh, quads yeah and Did you I, ask for it to have it in your butt? He didn't say no, no, no. Just my right butt cheek, please. No, it went. It went uh, quads, if I remember correctly. Okay. But I remember. I remember a degree of it gave me a kind of a euphoric feeling. Yeah. But then, because my sister was picking me up and she had to go to work, I had to get about out of bed and go with her. Yeah. And then I got nauseous and vomited in in the bin in the oh. hall, in the hallway. Just the uh, one time? <laughs> that I can remember. Yeah. But it did give me this kind of it's relaxing feeling. Wow. That's what I remember by it. Um, so th- this is also much more lipid soluble than morphine, but it has quite a poor bioavailability. So t- if you gave it orally, it's only 50% will get systemic. Uh, it's commonly, it's possibly more commonly used in labor, but it should be noted that all these opiates will cross the placental barrier. So yeah. the baby will have an effect from opioids. Usually it's the last choice for pain relief uh, during labor. You know, usually the usually they're going to try things like the, the gas. Um, then they'll do um, a... Uh, um, what's that? Epidural? It's epidural. I don't know why it slipped out of my mind then. Gas, epidural. Did Kel have an epidural? Kel had an epidural. Yeah, she had a C-section. No, but, <laughs> but did she have the epidural before she had... Um... No. 
She had pethidine though. Okay. And so that- she had, cause she had a 30 hour labor. So she, we went straight past the gas, had a bit of pethidine. That helped a lot. Then we realized that bubbles are coming out. We needed to have a C-section. So then epidural just to numb everything below the waist. Okay. And, uh, we're going to move on because we're going to run out of time on this recorder. Okay. So, so next one is fentanyl. Yeah. Fentanyl is very powerful. So it's a hundred times Let's more. Let's make this one the last one. It's so a, we can talk about addiction. Okay. And so I think I, I should mention briefly um, naloxone though. Um, no. <laughs> so fentanyl is completely synthetic. Okay. So it's completely man-made. It's a hundred times more potent than morphine is. So very, very... It's, it was traditionally used... In surgery or around surgery for strong pain. Yeah. But it's seen that it can be useful to kind of numb the nervous system when you want to do so, certain uh, procedures, like if you want to do a, a laryngoscopy or intubate someone, mm. it will kind of depress all your reaction to those. So, like a local anesthetic? Well, it just stops any kind of reflexive response your body would have to those things. So, gotcha. it would just kind of fully turn all that off. Yeah. But now they've found that it's useful in chronic pain. Okay. So they, because it's, has a high lipid content as well, it can be used in patches. So you could stick patches on ah, people and it's okay. diffused slowly. But interestingly with that, I spoke to a colleague about this and she said, um, a, a thing to be wary of is sometimes you give the patches to the patient and it will release the drug fairly well over time, which modulates their chronic pain. But, you have to be explicit in telling them to remove... Not to stick it on their tongue. <laughs> to remove the other patch. So, oh. patients have been just putting the, keep putting the stickers on without taking the last one oh, off. Oh, okay. And then they overdose. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's not cool. So, fentanyl, yeah, 500 times more lipid-soluble than morphine and about 100 times stronger. So, so look, this is what I don't get at the moment, right? Morphine's gold standard. It's the best so far. But all these you're staining are more potent, some are greater bioavailability, some are better, some are great at reducing this and that and the other. How come morphine's still gold standard? How come any of these haven't taken over? Morphine is the gold standard. It's just because of the way we give morphine and it's just constant understanding of its effects? Oh, what is it? Do we know? Good question. I'm, I, I guess the way that interacts will give a, a degree of clinical specificity. So in some cases, like say pethidine may have a clinical use in labor, whereas morphine wouldn't. Uh, I think in, in a lot of cases where a person would be in hospital for pain, morphine would be the go-to. But then as you go out into the um, the community, you might then, well, the, the physician may then prescribe drugs that you, because you don't want to bring a person because um, there's a problem then to give morphine um, IV or IM. So you want to give them a, a type of administration that can then be given, they can self-medicate. Um, oh. And so you want to give them an opioid that they can take orally. And I think you're right. I think it's got to do with the fact that it's just that morphine was the first. It's the gold standard. We know it has a great effect, but there's going to be ones that are better for specific situations. Yeah. Uh, um, so I'll skip a few. I'll just put one point here is methadone's a quite an interesting one. And this one seems to have, uh, it's a much a, sl- a slower release than, um, a lot of the others, but it sticks around for a bit longer. Um, and so that can be seen to be used in a- addiction settings for like heroin. And so it's still addictive in its own self. Yes. But it will, it seems to be less deleterious than p- possibly heroin would be. But they've found, uh, 
more recently, it's used for pain medication, so it seems to be good in that space. Finally, naloxin or Narcan is the blocker. Mm. So we kind of spoke about it already. It, um, but it has a very short half-life, which means it has a very strong affinity for the receptors, which, like you said, displaces the opioid that's sitting on it and therefore turns that effect off. But because it will then be excreted or turned off from the body, if you have uh, opioids on board that have a longer half-life, then as the naloxone or the Narcan goes off... You're high again. Then you're high again. So you'll have to get another bolus. Gotcha. Yeah. So they're the main drugs. Um, I think we couldn't go on forever, really. Oh, of course. There's so many of them. So do you want to just finish off How, how How much longer do we have? We have... 10 minutes. Okay, let's do addiction. So, this is the interesting thing. It seems that drug addiction is very similar to chronic pain. So, drug addiction has been attributed to reward deficiency. So, what, what's causing the symptomology, sim, the symptoms, symptomatology, symptomatology of drug addiction has been attributed to reward deficiencies, impaired inhibitory control, uh, incentive set sensitization and aberrant learning behaviors. So a whole bunch of things come into play with drug addiction, right? Um, but it seems to be that chronic pain isn't just this sensory abnormality. And to define chronic pain, you could potentially say that pain that lasts longer than three months, it's no longer acute. We no longer know what the direct cause is or the initial direct cause is no longer present, but they're still experiencing pain. Seems to not just be this sensory abnormality, but a disorder of the reward function. So it seems to be that pain and pleasure actually do go hand in hand and that pain needs to be mitigated by pleasure and vice versa. And it seems as though the pleasure component, the reward system, basically the dopaminergic systems within the body are not working properly when it comes to chronic pain. And this is also what's happening for addiction. So it seems that people with addictions have this reward deficiency. And what we think is happening is that You've got certain areas of the brain, such as the ventral tegmental area and also the nucleus accumbens. Now, both of these areas uh, have high densities of dopamine-producing neurons. So the nucleus accumbens is part of the striatum, which you know is part of the basal ganglia. Basal ganglia, dopamine is required for movement and reward and so forth. And the ventral tegmental area, again, origin of dopamine bodies for reward. Both of these neuron groups have receptors, opioid receptors, for kappa and mu. And so we have, when our endorphins, enkephalins, dynorphins are released, they'll bind to these receptors in times of pain, and we'll have a pleasure response, which is helping us mitigate that pain. So pleasure must be used to mitigate pain. If it's not working properly, we continue to experience pain. And so continue to experience pain could be chronic pain. But in addition to that, when it comes to addiction, seems to be that people who abuse things like heroin, Mm. because of feedback systems, when you've got a lot of exogenous opioids, your endogenous production drops down, which means in times of not taking the drug, your reward system's deficient. So the pain will, or depleted. So in times of pain, you don't have the appropriate reward response to mitigate it. So your own analgesic system isn't working properly. Now to further complicate the matter, there's a intrinsic link between pain and analgesia, endogenous analgesia, and the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So two parts of the brain, one part of the adrenal system. Basically, a HPA axis is a stress system. You get stressed, 
your hypothalamus releases um, corticotropin-releasing hormone, sends it down to the anterior pituitary gland, which stimulates the production of adrenal corticotropic hormone, which travels through the bloodstream, because it's a hormone, to the adrenal gland, and releases adrenaline, it releases cortisol, it releases hydrocortisone, it releases a whole bunch of chemicals involved in stress response. One, sympathetic response, fight or flight. Two, cortisol um, is a glucocorticoid increases the amount of free glucose so that you've got more energy to run away or fight another day, right? But at the same time that we stimulate this stress response, which also gets stimulated in times of pain, what also happens is adrenal corticotropic hormone, like I said, is produced in the anterior pituitary gland. It's produced from the exact same protein that endorphins are produced from. And so when you chop up this protein to make adrenal corticotropic hormone, you also create endorphins. So when you release ACTH to stimulate cortisol, you're also releasing the reward hormones, the opioids into the body to help mitigate the pain and the stress that's happening. And again, if there's a problem in these dopamine reward systems where these endorphins bind to, your reward and pleasure response may not work properly and therefore increase likelihood to seek it through exogenous drugs like heroin or you tend to experience chronic pain. Does that make sense? I think so. Hope so. All right. So well, let's leave it there then. So let's just finish finish off then. So we know addiction uh, with opioids seems to be very topical at the moment. Yeah. And um, at least you hear about it in America. I'm not sure the stats so much in Australia. I'm not but, sure. Either, but you do hear of these things being a big problem. Any ideas from the addiction side why? Why it's a problem? Yeah. Well, I think it's all got to do with the fact that. Any task that we do throughout the day, we do it because we get some sort of reward from it. And so the only way, the only motivation that we get as human beings is through endogenous reward systems. And so if there is a compound that we can use to stimulate this, we see it in animal models. They would rather continually stimulate their reward system than eat and they'll do it to death. Mm. So... Of course, people are going to become addicted. Of course, they're highly addictive compounds because everything we do in life is to seek reward and motivation. Yeah. So I think particularly with the opioids, the problem started to exist in the, the, the 90s when pain was, it was kind of looked at differently by physicians in a way that... It was all mechanical. Yeah, but also the chronic pain um, wasn't oh. really taken seriously. Yeah. And definitely... like. All the opioids were seen to be used in acute pain states after surgery and possibly in really bad malignancies, where which was terminal. But, yeah. but chronic pain was probably under-medicalized. Yeah. But in the 90s, it seemed like a lot of these drugs that we just spoke about were brought onto the market and they were told that they, they got great outcomes, you're going to have less dependence, you're going to have less addiction and all that stuff that we might see with, say, heroin. Um, but it didn't seem to occur. And they were very cheap. And also, physicians seemed to over-prescribe. So, you know, you go into surgery and get, I don't know, what's what's a pre- pretty quick surgery? Um, wisdom teeth. Yeah. So, you get your t- wisdom teeth taken out, which I've had as well. Okay. Um, you've taken out. And, you know, you might be in pain for two days. Sure. But you might get a prescription for two weeks. Yeah. Because these drugs are pretty cheap. Mm. Um, and you, the, the physician probably didn't want to get bugged in three days' time for another prescription. Correct. So, they're like, here, take this. 
you this will last you two weeks. Just kind of stop taking it when you when you lose pain. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. And so probably two things happened. People either just kept on taking it, or it was it remained in the drug cabinet. And then people thought next time they came for a headache instead of mm. taking paracetamol. Oh, there's endone here. I might try try that again. Yeah. And so this became a problem. Yeah. And so makes this sense. this led into what we see now. And so when you look in America, I don't know stats in Australia. It's only because I I listened to a thing this morning. Ninety people die per day in America from opioid overdose. Wow. Significant. Yeah. Significant. Yeah. And so. It's going to require uh, a multidiscipline approach to try and deal with this problem. And maybe the way we look at pain um, we need, and the way we try to treat it mm. needs to be different. Yeah, and, I think so. And so things with maybe less addictive properties. So, for instance, if you have, I don't know, a joint surgery, you might be able to get away with putting a long stand-in local anesthetics, nerve blocks in, sure. which won't be addictive, mm. but they'll mitigate that pain yeah. for a number of days. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Makes sense. So, it's quite interesting. Oh, it's very interesting. I love and, this topic. And, and it'll be very... Pain and pain relief is, is one to of my see favorite where topics. It, to see where it goes. Because in terms of a physiological phenomenon, it mm. seems fairly simple. Yes. But, but we have not. really no idea on how to best treat it. Correct. Which, which may need both pharmacological but also what psychological or cognitive? All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. All right. So, do you think we've done well, enough for the opioids? We've done a great job. We've done the best I, job we possibly could. <laughs> I know we've missed a couple of big ones. Uh, if you're still listening, you're probably <laughs> aware that uh, there's no other podcast that's going to cover this amount of material as well as we do. And if you want to follow us, you can go on... Facebook, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical I don't think, Podcast. Do we even use that? Yeah, I do. You don't. Uh, and you can go onto my Instagram page. That's, that's, that's good. Yeah, I've got a lot of traction with the Instagram page. Just go to Dr. Mike Todorovic, all one word, D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C, onto Instagram, and you'll be able to see videos, five-minute videos that I make on a whole bunch of anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology topics. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.